0: In Britain in the 1970s, packets of tea would often contain a little illustrated card. One series told you about dinosaurs, one covered the history of aviation, another dealt with the wonders of the sea... British children marvelled at the Outre site of a small group of Japanese women in traditional costume, eating seaweed and raw fish. It seemed so strange, but that was before globalisation. Now, over 40 years later, British kids say, Dad, can we go to Yo Sushi? So how did we get from there to here? And where are we going next? I want to introduce you to somebody who knows, well, sort of knows. My name's Matthew Sweet, and this is the podcast from 1843, the new sister magazine of The Economist, where you can hear our contributors in conversation. And with me is Adrian Waldridge, who's travelled the world in the service of The Economist, and whose new column, The Reluctant Global Citizen, starts in the April-May issue of 1843. Now, Adrian, we shouldn't spoil the punchline of your best story in the column, but you're in a sushi place in Japan and you're a little nervous. So when was this?
1: This was in about 1995. The world had become a little bit sushi-fied by then. We all knew a bit about sushi, but it wasn't like a commonplace thing that we have today and we see every day. And um, I was a bit confused. I didn't know what was going on. I was a tourist in Japan for the first time. And I went into the sushi bar and tried to order some sushi.
0: So you were in Japan in 1995. Can we really talk about a pre-globalised Japan at that date?
1: What you have to understand about Japan in this period is that it was just coming off the tail end of a gigantic boom. It was, had been extraordinarily successful in the 1980s, continued to be quite successful in the 1990s. So the fundamental thing about the country then was it was very, very expensive. Everything you did just cost a lot of money. If you took a taxi from Narita Airport into the centre of town, you were basically bankrupt for your whole trip. So things were expensive. It was globalised, but in a very strange way. And I say in the column that walking around Tokyo was a slightly disorienting experience because on the one hand, it was very mundane, tall buildings that could be anywhere in the world. On the other hand, nobody speaks English. The people look very different. Their behaviour is very different. You have a language which, I, as a non-Japanese speaker, is indecipherable. And you do see these glimpses all over the place of the old Japan, of tea houses, of temples. Uh, On the other hand, you're in a world of corporate banality.
0: Maybe we know that world a little better now, thanks to the the export of, of Japanese food, Japanese cultural objects. Maybe we now live in that uh, future that was predicted by that little card that I mentioned.
1: Oh, absolutely. I think uh, sushi has become rather banal now. Everybody has sushi. There's a sushi bar just up the road from the economies. Um, It's become part of everybody's uh, life. But then it wasn't quite so much. It certainly wasn't something you would eat on a a weekly basis.
0: It was one of those futures that we were promised. Maybe it's the only one that we actually got because we were always being told about the monorails coming, weren't they, and uh, the moon bases Arriving. But it was the sushi that we got.
1: The sushi was the one triumph of globalisation, all the rest of it like the four-hour working week and, and infinite luxury and, uh, and monorails and perfect communications. None of that has arrived. What about that idea of Japan as
0: being a place where the future might already be happening? Is that idea still
1: intact? So sure. Know. When I went to Japan in the, the, the mid-1990s for the first time, this was the country of the future and people were still obsessed by the Japanese manufacturing manufacturing model. We wanted to learn how to make cars better. Japan, this was just at the very tail end of the world where Japan was the model, but it was beginning to fall apart. And since then, Japan has gone from being the ultimate place that everybody studied to being a a case study in how not to run an economy. We eat their food, but we don't think that they're a model for how to organize society. But still, it's the second biggest economy in the world. It has lots and lots of great Companies, I think we're probably underestimating the power and importance of, of, of Japan now. But definitely in the 1990s, it had a glamour. It had a, an attractiveness, which um, was
0: what drove me there. It was maybe also locus of anxiety to some extent, too. If you think about that great film Blade Runner from the 1980s, which, which shows us a Japanese-flavoured future. And it's a sort of dystopian one, isn't it? It's in an L.A. lashed by acid rain where everybody is eating noodles
1: Japan very much has that Blade Runner feel to it because Tokyo is an infinitely large city. It just goes on and on and on. It's very crowded. There's lots going on. But I would say that if you want to visit dystopia now... If you want to see an image of the future now, you go to Shanghai or you go to Beijing. These are places that that have all of those characteristics, plus the most amazingly awful pollution.
0: But how interesting that, that China has displaced Japan as the culture and society around which we form those ideas and fantasies. Does the fact that Japan seems to have slipped away from us so briskly, really, in historical terms, tell us anything about the limits of our fantasies or predictions about China should be?
1: Absolutely. Many people were predicting in the 80s and early 1990s that Japan would take over the world and you had Japanese companies buying up the Rockefeller Center and various other uh, iconic American institutions for extraordinary uh, amounts of money. And everybody said, you know, we either learn to live like the Japanese or we're doomed. And now you're saying the same set of arguments uh, being applied to the China, China is the country of the future. But just as I went to Japan for this column in 1995, when it was just beginning to turn, when you could see the cracks in the system, you could see the future being not quite so bright for Japan as it had been in the 1980s, we're seeing exactly the same thing with with China. Chinese growth is no longer 10% a year. It's 7% a year. So China is doing what Japan did, which is becoming no longer the country of the future, but the country of an imagined future or of the past in some ways. The column is called the reluctant global citizen. What are the, what are the causes of your reluctance? Globalization is this wonderful thing. It has all these promises. It has this promise of cultural richness, of multiculturalism, of sushi, of being able to travel everywhere. But it's always a disappointment. The train to the airport doesn't quite work. The aeroplane doesn't quite take off on time. Just the sheer hassle of getting through the security outweighs all the benefits. Globalisation is there, it's full of promise, it delivers many good things, but nevertheless there is a huge cost that we're paying, and that cost seems to be getting bigger and bigger every day. Travel becomes more unpleasant, it becomes more tiring, it has more and more irritations. And I would say the same with globalisation. It was wonderful when the first sushi restaurant started opening up in London and everywhere else, but the upside is a bit banal and the downside is is, is, is a sort of multicultural mess. So it's about being a bit jaded about globalisation, I think, this column.
0: Does it in a way suggest that globalisation might be one of those futures that never quite arrives?
1: Globalisation means lots of different things at different moments. In the 1980s, the future was Japanese. In the early 2000s, the future was, was Chinese. There's, we're always being offered different futures and they're always being snatched away from us. The point of this column is not to say that globalization is a bad thing. It's this sort of mirage. It's this wonderful thing that you're constantly reaching out towards and that sometimes delivers marvelous things, but it's always sort of not quite what it's cracked up to be. Do
0: you think we're going to throw the term away?
1: No. I think globalization and the rest of it is absolutely part of our vocabulary from from now on because it does capture something that's very important. We live in increasingly diverse multicultural societies. We can travel enormous distances very, very, uh, very quickly, and we're constantly getting information from here, there, and everywhere. This uh,
0: first column is about food. I wonder whether we could do a bit of futurology and make some predictions about what might follow Japanese cuisine onto the British high street.
1: There'll never be anything quite as big as Japanese food again, because Japanese, as I said, it was the world's second largest economy. It was this very distinctive culture, and we hadn't seen it before. We've had Chinese food for a long time. We've had Indian food for a long time, but we'd never seen this Japanese thing. This was a a new experience. I think now we're going to get little bits of advances from all over the world, so a bit of South Africa, a bit of Brazil, um, but nothing quite so exotic as as what we... I, I, I must say, I must add, there's a lot of the Japanese food in this country, quite frankly. It's pretty awful.
0: Now, it's interesting you should mention... Chinese food and Indian food, because they came to us here in rather different ways. Those cuisines followed waves of people um, and uh, you know, British consumers decided to, to investigate the tastes of their neighbours. But perhaps the food trends that are, that are moving along these lines are moving in rather different ways now. You don't seem to require a population, do you, for the cuisine to come?
1: Yeah, a lot of this was uh, Indian food and Chinese food were always driven by diasporas. What we now see is a lot of uh, the globalization of taste is driven just by the search for novelty, the search for something new and different. People are always looking for the next, the next big thing. And that's why I think it will never have that solidity of the past. It will always be sampling and, of course, the other thing that you get is these strange permutations with, with globalized food, this mishmash of, of this, that and the other, sometimes successful, uh, sometimes unsuccessful. Do
0: you observe any, any kind of odd fusions or, or border crossings um, as you
1: travel around the world? Yes, I, re- I remember going to Atlanta, Georgia, and my great discovery in Atlanta, Georgia, was a fusion of Korean and tacos, which were fantastic. All these various kimchi tacos. And Koreans had set up shop in a part of the town which was dominated by, by Latinos. So they got talking to each other and they got mixing the food together. So, again, I think a lot of these diaspora sort of cities. Why, why does this happen in Atlanta, Georgia, in the middle of uh, uh, the, the American South? I think you're seeing diasporas getting to know each other and mixing this, that, and the others has got enormous potential.
0: Well, this is brilliant. I feel your
1: reluctance about
0: uh, about globalization of being a global citizen slipping Absolutely. away that's that's
1: of course that's that's the thing that there's all these wonderful possibilities and then you try and get on the plane and it's cancelled or you sit next to some ghastly person who's shouting and raving or doing something awful and your your taste for globalization uh, disappears and the other thing which is uh, the other side of it apart from the irritations of globalization is the banality of some of what globalisation has become. If you go to an airport in London or New York or Beijing or Singapore, there is a sort of global sort of style to them all which robs travel of its uh, of its romance. The same shops selling the same books in the same sorts of, sorts of ways. Thanks very much indeed, Adrian.
0: If you want to meet the reluctant global citizen, then you can do so in the April-May issue of 1843 magazine. In print, on our app or online at 1843magazine.com.